Hey, Pastor Bobby here. I'm so glad you're joining us to hear what God is sharing with our community here at Chapel. And I pray, I am praying right now for you, that this message will bless you. It'll be an inspiration to you. It will challenge you to be who God has called you to be and to do what God has called you to do. And so as we jump into the message, I pray that you open up your mind to God's word, open up your heart to God's spirit, and watch the two come together to bring a supernatural miracle in your life. So let's jump into what God is speaking to us right now. And our church has always been independent, non-denominational, which is a good thing, but it's also a bad thing. It means you lack some resources, you lack some connections, you lack some relationships that God would use to bring blessing into the life of the church. And so we've been looking, we talked to a couple of different organizations and hung out, and uh, at the moment we connected with Radiant, it felt like home. And it wasn't just home, it was this thing that we've always struggled with, the word church and the spirit church, because word and spirit, and either churches are way far on the spirit side or they're way far on the word side, and we just never found that place. And when we found Radiant, we found a balanced, full of life, word and spirit church that I believe God is using to be a voice to the entire country. And what I found was many times we look for relationships that just to reaffirm who we are, like they're just like us or they're, they think just like us. And what I found at Radiant was not people who reaffirmed me but they stretched me into what God could be, or what I could be in God. And so teaching me and exposing me to things that may be weaknesses for me that I could grow in and become strengths. And it's been a godsend for us, this church, as we help plant churches through the Radiant Network. Uh, they've planted all over the country and are still planting. And so it's been a, a great thing. We took our team to True North, which is a creative conference in February, I believe, and Arise Shine, which is the all-church conference later on in May. And it's been pouring life into this church for the last two years. And so it's an honor and privilege to have him with us. And so if you would stand to your feet and welcome Pastor Lee Cummings. Good morning. Morning, Chapel. It is a pleasure to be here. It's terrible to see yourself on screen, but it's great to be here. Uh, and we have just loved getting to know Pastor Bobby. Uh, he's come up to Kalamazoo a few times. I just wonder, is there anybody in the room that has ever made a pilgrimage to the thriving metropolis of Kalamazoo, Michigan? Raise your hand if you've ever been there. A couple of you. Uh, so thank you. Thanks for coming. This is my first time in Florence, Alabama, and uh, it's a beautiful place. I love Alabama. And uh, our first service, uh, one of the things that Bobby bragged on all of you when he would come up is just how friendly of a church this is. And that's absolutely true. So many people have just made us feel totally at home and welcome. And so thank you. And it's a privilege to be here with you guys. We've heard so much about you. And uh, Pastor Bobby loves you and brags on you all over the place. So isn't it good to be in the house of the Lord this morning? So uh, I'm glad to be with you. Let me just tell you quickly uh, a snapshot of myself so that you maybe, if, if we don't know each other or we've not met, you have a frame of reference. Uh, my wife, Jane, is not able to be with me uh, today, but uh, I've been married for 27 years to Jane. And uh, we have three adult children, Ashley, Jared, and Tiffany. Ashley's married to Zach, and uh, in February, they gave us our first grandchild. And so little Owen was born, and so it's the best thing in the world. If you're a grandparent, uh, you warned all the rest of us about how incredible that is. We didn't believe you until we had one. And so it's awesome. So we're spoiling him like crazy already. He doesn't even know what's hitting him, but that's okay. And uh, so uh, my wife and I planted Radiant Church in 1996. 
Uh, we were 25 years old. We moved from a great church in Grand Rapids down to Kalamazoo, actually in a little town called Richland, small little community. And uh, we started having church in a high school cafetorium. It's not quite an auditorium and not quite a cafe. It's a cafetorium. And uh, the mascot of the school was the Blue Devils. And so the room was affectionately referred to as the Devil's Den. When you walked in, there was a big sign over the, ca the cafetorium that says, Welcome to the Devil's Den. So that's where we had church. Uh, and I, I always say, if you can start a church in the Devil's Den at 25 with no money, no people, no experience, no nothing, and you can make that last, then you've got proof that God is real. And so 20, uh, 23 years this September, later on, God's just been so good to us. Uh, thousands of people call Radiant Home, uh, and we've been able to help other churches get their start, plant around the United States, and existing churches find a family. And the greatest privilege of my life is to serve Jesus and to teach His Word. And so this morning, that's why I'm here, and I want to invite you, if you have your Bibles, to open your Bible with me to Mark, the 13th chapter. Mark chapter 13, and you might have a smartphone device you're looking at Scripture uh, or uh, a paper copy like I have. I'm going to be reading this morning, <coughs> excuse me, from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I think the notes might come up in New King James, but I think both of these translations communicate parts of what I want to say this morning in a very powerful and very cogent way. So I'm going to begin reading in verse number 32, and again, this is the ESV. It says, but concerning that day, this is Jesus speaking, concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard and keep awake. The New King James says, take heed, watch and pray, but keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home, he puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and he commands the doorkeeper to, there it is again, stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows in the morning, lest he comes and suddenly finds you asleep. And what I say, I say to you all, and then he says it one more time, stay awake. <coughs> the New King James emphasizes watch, the watchfulness. And the reason why it uses that word watch is because in the ancient English language in which the King James and New King James were translated, watchfulness was a military position in the middle of the night. You took the watch, which meant you, your focus was to stay awake, to stay awake. So let's practice that this morning. I want everybody to say these two words with me. Stay awake. Go ahead. Say it one more time. Say, stay awake. See, that's not just our goal this morning in church. It needs to be our goal in the kingdom. It needs to be our goal in following Jesus because this is what Jesus says to his followers about the days that I believe you and I are living in, the days preceding the coming of the Lord. He says, I want you to stay awake. You'll notice that this is what's re oftentimes referred to as Jesus's Olivet Discourse. He's teaching his disciples about the, his coming and the signs of his coming 
and the conditions of the world and the conditions of spiritual atmosphere that will precede his return. They're asking him, Lord, tell us about your coming. And Jesus focuses on a lot of the signs. If you read the other gospel accounts like Matthew chapter 24, Luke 21, Jesus talks about some of the signs that will precede the coming of the Lord. He talks about Israel as a nation. He talks about kingdom rising against kingdom, nation against nation. He talks about signs in the heavens, signs on the earth. And you know, there are lots of books that are written about that, aren't there? When I was in high school in 1988, I was a senior in high school, and a book came out called 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988. And, you know, about a decade later, there was a series of books called Left Behind. In the 70s, if you were serving Jesus in the 70s, you might remember Hal Lindsey's The Great, Late Great Planet Earth. There's all these books that typically come out. And, and when I was in high school in the book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus Will Return in 1988, when that came out, it scared all of us to death. Because this man uh, who wrote the book, he had a radio program, and he made a, a very compelling case for 1988. Well, I'm a senior in high school, and all of us were serving Jesus at the time, a bunch of us, and we're reading the book, and he predicted in September, I'm like, man, uh, that means I'm not going to see basketball season. And I was discouraged by that. I'm like, oh, uh, Jesus, I want you to come back, but I want to play basketball. And a bunch of the girls in our youth group were like, that means I'm never going to get married to Tommy or Johnny. And it's like, you know, that's not very spiritual, right? No, there was a huge sigh of relief when October 1988 came and Jesus hadn't come. And it's terrible in one way, but it's common in another way because when it comes to the church, oftentimes we focus in on all the details about his coming. We want to know the day. We want to know the hour. We want to know the month. We want to know the signs that are preceding it. And, and it's important that we pay attention to those things. But I think what's very unique about what Jesus said in this passage is he was focusing and emphasizing not the external circumstances or the external signs that would precede his coming, but what he was most in, what he was most urgent about, what he emphasized most was the internal preparation and condition of his followers when that time would come. See, we all want to get wrapped up in you know, the signs of the times. There were, uh, this will date me, but some of you might remember this. There were these terrible movies that came out in the late 70s, early 80s called Mark of the Beast and the Great Tribulation and different things like this. And they were all these portrayals of what the world would be like during the tribulation. And I, I, there's like this sick attraction to watching scary movies. I don't know if you have it, but even Christian movies, I would watch this and I was so intrigued by it and it was basically an artist's rendition or a, a movie maker's rendition of what they thought the times would be like. And, you know, it, it goes with the same with those books. Uh, it, it's going to be this, the Antichrist will rise, all these things. I'm not here this morning to emphasize those things, but I am here to say this. It's important that we realize the times in which we live. Because Jesus referred to it and the Apostle Paul emphasized it that the return of the Lord is the blessed hope of the church. 
that there is going to come a day when Jesus is going to crack the eastern sky. He's going to return, and he's going to make all of his enemies his footstool. He's going to set up his kingdom on earth. He's going to raise from the dead, resurrect the righteous. He's going to set up his throne of judgment, and he's going to establish his earthly kingdom. He's going to wipe away every tear from those who are mourning. He's going to reconcile those who have gone home to be with the Lord with those who are still waiting. And he's going to make all things that are wrong right. Hallelujah, that's going to be a glorious day. That's going to be a good day. But instead of staying so focused, though, on the signs, I think it's important that we also recognize that the most important thing that we can do as followers of Jesus living in days that I believe are preceding, we're, I mean, we're, I don't know if it's going to be 100 years or 50 years, but here's what I know. We're, we're closer to the return of the Lord today than we were yesterday. And these may not be the last days, but these are my last days. These are your last days. If I live 50 more years, I'm going to see the Lord at that point. And what I do in this life matters. And Jesus' emphasis to his disciples, you'll, you'll see it in the scripture. He says it four times in a few verses. He says, make sure that you stay awake. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Don't allow yourself to be lulled to sleep. Why did Jesus say those things? Why didn't he spend more time talking about all these external things? It's because Jesus knew that the greatest threat to the church in the last days doesn't come from the outside, it comes from the inside. The greatest threat against your faith today is spiritual slumber, that you would fall asleep in your walk with God. You know, there's this scientific principle about the human body I find fascinating. <clears throat> I, uh, I travel a fair bit, travel overseas this next year in the fall and then into the winter. I'll be in, within 30 days, I'll be in four different countries and I'm going to cross, I don't know, like 10 different time zones a couple different times. And the way that God has designed the physical body is amazing. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, I don't know how anybody can look at the physical human body and walk away and say that happened by chance. It just kind of happened. I mean, it's like intricately detailed and it's powerful and it's beautiful and it's, and we're still trying to unravel how the brain works. But your body has something called a circadian rhythm that controls your sleep patterns. How many have heard that phrase before, a circadian rhythm? Okay, here's what the circadian rhythm is. I'm gonna give you a clinical definition of it. Clinical definition of it from a scientific journal is this. A circadian rhythm is a physical, mental, and behavioral change that follows a cycle. It's your brain responding primarily to light and darkness in a person's direct environment. It's controlled by nerve clusters that are just above the optic nerve behind your eye. So here's, here's what it means in layman terms, that your brain calibrates for you when it's going to be active and alert and when you're going to go to sleep. And it creates a rhythm. So I want you to think of it in these terms. So your eye is a window, and the way that God's designed us is that when it's light out, it's day, and that means we're supposed to be functioning. We're supposed to go to work. We're supposed to get up. You know, I've got a, a college son who sleeps in my basement until like 10.30 in the morning. I'm just like, boy, it's time to get up. It is daytime. I know you don't have any windows down there, but let me shed some light on your reality. It's time to get up. 
It's because God's designed us. When it's light out, we're supposed to be active. So what your brain does is when light comes through your eyes, the more light, it hits those nerve clusters and it communicates to the brain, it's time to get active and your brain starts flipping all the lights on in all the different sections of your brain. But when the day starts getting darker, and the, it begins to be dusk and then into the evening and you have less light hitting those nerve clusters, it sends a, a signal to the brain that it's time for us to rest. And it goes through all the different rooms of your brain and begins to turn lights off. That's why you begin to feel drowsy and tired. And it knows that this rhythm happens within a 24-hour cycle. As this planet circles around the sun and we have day and night, your brain has this rhythm as well and it's called a circadian rhythm. So you, your brain tells your body when it's going to sleep. Now, here's what happens when you travel. If you've ever had jet lag, you know what I'm talking about. You get on a plane in Alabama, and it's, let's say, 5.30 in the morning, and so you're wide awake. You get on that plane. You fly against the sun. Let's say you go to Australia, and you fly, and when you land there, it'll be 14 hours in the future. So you get off a plane and it's morning there, but your brain is calibrated to the time zone that you live in, which is Alabama. And back in Alabama, you've gotten into a circadian rhythm and it's nighttime and it's time to go to sleep. So even though you're standing in the light of Australia, in the day of Australia, your brain is calibrated to Alabama. And so your body is used to that, it begins to wanna to go to sleep. And when you come home, it will do the exact opposite. You'll get off, and what the difficult part of jet lag is actually coming home, because I'll get home, and I've adjusted to the time zone I was in for 10 days or two weeks. And so when I come home, I'll go to sleep, try and force myself to go to sleep, but at three in the morning, I just wake up, and it's because wherever I just was, it's morning there, and it's 3 a.m. here, so my body has adjusted. Now, I'm going somewhere with this. Listen to me. They tell you that... It takes one day per hour of time difference to adjust. So if it's 10 time zones in the future, it takes you a day for your body to begin to adjust, to get the circadian rhythm to adjust and to adapt. Well, here's what I want you to know, that your spirit, your soul has a circadian rhythm. When you were born again, when you were saved, when Jesus rescued you from darkness, forgave your sins, filled you with the Holy Spirit. The Bible says that you at that moment become a citizen of heaven. That heaven is your home, Jesus is your king, light penetrates the darkness of your heart and you become a child of the day. Which means your spirit gets calibrated to the kingdom of God. It's daytime, it's light time. When you first get saved, you're passionate, in love with Jesus. I mean, everything's brand new. You go to church every time the church doors are open. You get teary just hearing a song that speaks to you about the, the grace and the love of God. You can't help but tell everybody about what God has done in your life. You're just excited, you're zealous. Why? Because your spirit has suddenly become calibrated to the kingdom of God. But then, even though your spirit is calibrated to the kingdom of God, because now you're seated with Christ in heavenly places. 
I don't know if you know that this morning, but your feet might be in Florence, Alabama, but your spirit is seated with Christ in heavenly places. You are seated on a throne at the right hand of Jesus. You have power, you have authority, and you are on this earth as an ambassador of the kingdom of God. But now you live in the middle of a culture in a world that is spiritually dark. Isaiah chapter 60, verse one says, arise, shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. It says, darkness has covered the earth, gross darkness, the people, but the glory of God shall be seen upon you. What does that mean? It means we're people of the light, of the glory of God that are living in the midst of darkness. And here's what oftentimes happens. We get saved over here. Our heart, spirit gets calibrated to the kingdom of God. But every day that we live in spiritual darkness of a world and a culture that increasingly is rejecting Jesus, rejecting God, rejecting his word, that has its own substructures and belief systems and values and priorities. As we live in this world, what happens is our soul begins to adjust to the time zone of darkness instead of being calibrated any longer to the kingdom of light. That's when we fall asleep because it's Sunday every day in heaven. But as we walk in this earth and we live our lives and we go and do our, our jobs and we go to school, what are we? We're living in darkness. So we're here in this time zone, even though we belong to another. And it happens ever so slowly that we begin to adjust and adapt into the time zone that we're in. That's why Jesus is saying to his disciples as he's about to depart, he's saying to them, guys, I'm not going to be here to keep you recalibrated. You know, how many know that walking with Jesus would be an amazing, an amazing way to live your life? If I were to say right now, hey, you can live in this age right now, or I can take you in a time machine back to when Jesus walked on the face of the earth, and you can be one of his disciples walking in his footsteps. How many of you would be game for that? You'd be like, I'll go walk with Jesus. Can you imagine? It's like, you're not just believing in Jesus, you're walking with Jesus. But Jesus is saying to his disciples, guys, I'm not going to be with you. And so you, you got to realize this, that darkness is going to get darker, but you got to keep your heart calibrated to light. Stay awake. Take heed to yourself, watch and pray. Because here's what's going to happen. If you don't intentionally keep calibrating yourself to the kingdom of God, you're going to begin to experience spiritual slumber because that's how the enemy works. That's how the enemy works. You see, if the devil can't keep you from getting saved, his second best thing is to keep you paralyzed, distracted, or distorted in your relationship with God. He would rather you just be low to sleeping over here. Okay, they're going to go to heaven. That's great. But let's get them to be ineffective with their life while they're here. Let's get them to be blinded to an eternal reality. Let's get them to put their swords on the shelf and not engage. Let's get them to not spend any time in the world. Let's get them to just go to sleep. Zombies. He just wants you to, my, my kids love to watch those zombie shows, like the walk, ah, walking dead. And I'm, has anybody seen those? I know you're in church. You're not supposed to say that you watch those things, but I know some of you did. When you watch them, I can't help but think that there's, that's how a lot of Christians live their life. They're walking dead. They've, they're in the world. They've got the greater one of God living on the inside of them. They've got miracles ready to bust out of them, but they're walking around spiritually dead in, sl in slumber. And Jesus says, stay awake, stay awake. There's some things that I believe 
we need to do in our day, in our age, if we're gonna stay awake. If we're gonna stay awake, it's not gonna happen just by accident. You know, if you try and stay awake tonight, if I were to tell you, hey, stay awake all night tonight, you would do really good, you know, 11 o'clock. I go to bed around 10, but you might do good 11, 12, 30. How many of you are late night people? Raise your hand if you're a late night person. Okay, so you'll probably do good till one, two. Some of you may be a little crazy. You're like 3 a.m., that's no problem. But around 4 a.m., that last watch, all of a sudden you start, ooh. You'll begin to fall asleep. You're gonna have to do some things intentionally if you're gonna stay awake all night. And can I just tell you something? <coughs> I know we're new friends, but let me just tell you something as a servant of Jesus. I know this. I've been a pastor for 25 years. Listen to me, Christian. And I mean this. This is not just sermon filler material. This is kingdom reality that can change your eternity. Is if you're going to stay awake in this present hour and what's coming in the future, you're going to have to intentionally lean in to Jesus in a way that you never have before in order to stay awake. It's not just going to happen. Or when he returns, just like Jesus said, when he comes, you don't know what day he comes. When he comes, you're going to find yourself having, been, having fallen asleep. And you know, one of the worst things I think that is going to uh, occur on the day that we see Jesus. I know we're all going to heaven, but Paul also said that there's reward and that there's some that are going to make it in as through fire and everything that their life amounted to is going to be wood, hay, and stubble because it didn't mount to anything eternal. I think on that day, there are going to be a lot of Christians who are going to be excited about getting into heaven, but I don't know how it's going to work, whether it's projector screens or LED walls, or I don't know what it is, but I think Jesus is going to say, this is the life you lived. And we're going to go, yeah, it looks familiar. And he's going to then go like this. And this is the life I designed you to live. Wow. Are you kidding me? I was called to do that. What happened? And he's going to say, because you weren't listening because you fell asleep. Enter into my kingdom, but you could have had a whole lot more reward. You could have brought a whole lot more people with you. You could have lived a lot more victoriously in that life. Stay awake. That's Jesus's message to us. And listen to me. It's the message of Jesus to his church right now. It's his message to all of us. It doesn't matter if you're a pastor on a platform, whether you're a mom making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in your kitchen, or whether you're a lawyer in a courtroom, or a professor or an administrator on a university, or whether you're an amateur college football player. Bobby, I like college football. I'm a Michigan State fan. Don't at me. Okay. It doesn't matter whether, uh, whether you're a politician. It doesn't matter who you are, what sector of life that you are in right now. You are called to stay awake. So let me in the next few moments just give you three things to consider that are essential if we're going to respond to Jesus's command, his exhortation to stay awake. Number one is this. If you're going to stay awake, you cannot relax. You can't relax. You know, when, when you come home at night from work or whatever you do in the evenings and you come home, first thing you want to do is you want to relax. And so you find a comfortable chair or lay on the couch or maybe if it's really late, you come home and you just can't wait to lay down in your bed. If your goal is to stay awake, you have to avoid relaxation. Because as soon as you relax, you're on your way to falling asleep. Now, let me just tell you that there is a difference in the spirit 
between resting in God and relaxing in the world. Two totally different things. You can live urgently and watchfully in this life, but yet peacefully because you find your rest in God. I'm not talking about that. What I'm talking about is relaxing, letting down our guard, relaxing and finding the comfort zone of the world as, uh, you know, a big barker lounger. We just kind of lay our life down and we just kind of let our, 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 our standards, our values, our belief systems relax because the rest of the world is very comfortable. Do you know that the Bible says those who are going to enter into the kingdom will do it with much tribulation. It says that those who suffer, there are those who suffer violence and the violent take it by force. It's the kingdom of God. It means that we've got to have action into it. Relaxation is a state of just kind of letting go. And when we do that in our faith and we just say, oh, I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. And, you know, I'm just living in the world. And the more that culture deviates away from the values of the kingdom of God and the distinction between the children of light and the children of darkness become more clear as there's polarity in the last days, the more we will be tempted to say, well, I don't want to stand out as weird and different. I don't, I don't want to be the odd person out, so maybe I just need to adjust my values. Let me just tell you something, Christian. You're already weird. You're already weird. You believe that you believe that God became a man, came down, lived a sinless life, died on a cross to make every human being's sins go away. And on the third day, you believe he rose again. And you believe that he still got nail scars in his hands and in his side and that he's seated next to God on a throne in heaven and that there's a day coming back when he's going to return and judge the living and the dead. You're already strange to the world. So you might as well just go all the way and be a fanatic. You might as well just go all the way and not be intimidated by the fact the world sometimes is going to look at your behavior and say, why, are you, why do you have that standard? Why do you walk in, why do you, what do you call it, holiness? Why, why does that matter? If there's nothing about our lives that makes the world look at us and then take inventory of the distinction between them and us, then there's something wrong with us, not just them. There needs to be something on the inside of the way that we live that makes the world stop and go, man, why, am, why are they like that? And I'm like this. But when we relax and we let down our guard, we let down our values, we let down our voice, it leads to compromise. And let me tell you, compromise is a spiritual bacteria that grows in a Petri dish of comfort. It'll grow. It's like bacteria just spreads. You get a little bit of compromise and it will lead to massive compromise. There's this uh, character in the Bible that we've all grown up hearing about. His name is Lot. He's the nephew of Abraham, the father of our faith. And you remember Lot and Abraham came to this impasse, this moment where Abraham says, your men and your herds are too many to be side by side with mine. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to split the land. You pick which way you want to go. You can have any part of Canaan. Where do you want to go? And it says that Lot looked down into the valley towards Sodom, and he saw that the valley was lush, and it was green, and it was beautiful, and there's these cities, and Lot chose to pitch his tents. In other words, set up camp for his, his clan, it says, towards Sodom. So Abraham says, you go that way, I'll go this way. But if you read the rest of the story in Genesis... 
You remember when God is about to judge Sodom, Abraham intercedes with God and says, hey, my, my nephew is there. Let's go get them out of there. And there's just a handful of righteous people there. So when they go down to get Lot, the angels of the Lord go to get Lot and to rescue him out. Of, he's not living on the outskirts of Sodom anymore. Now he's living in Sodom. And he's not living in tents. He's got a house. He went from temporary residency, a temporary mindset, to a permanent mindset. He went from, I'm a stranger who's living here, to now I'm one of them. And it says that he had to rescue him out of Sodom. How did this happen to Lot? Well, in the New Testament, Peter, in his epistle, 2 Peter, tells us how it happened. It says in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 7, And God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, Lot, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day, by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. So how did it happen? How did Lot go from being the nephew of Abraham on a journey of faith, seeing miracles, believing God, knowing he's got precious promises to inherit? God calls him righteous. But now he's moved into town and become one of them. We know that his morals shifted because when they came knocking on the door wanting them to send the angels out so that they could abuse them, he offers his daughters. I don't know about you, but that's not a righteous response. But he had been corrupted. How, did he, how was he corrupted? Listen to me. By what he saw and he heard on a daily basis. That's how the enemy works in your life. The enemy rarely will appear at your door, knock, you open it up and he says, hi, my name is Lewis Siffer and I'm here to destroy you and to make your life a living hell and take everything good out of your life and shipwreck your faith for eternity. Can I come in? That's not how the enemy works. No, what he does is he comes camouflaged in little things. Little compromises, little shifts, little concessions. And once, you might say no one time, but he'll come back over and over and over and over and over again until you cave. How many of you have an Instagram account? Anybody got an IG account? Raise your hand if you have an Instagram account. Have you ever noticed you can be talking about something and then all of a sudden when you're on Instagram an ad comes up for that very same thing? It's creepy, right? It's like, how did that happen? And it will come up over and over and over again because they know repetition wears you down. And that's what happens to Christians in this culture. Darkness is getting darker. That's right. And we see it, we see it, we see it, we see it, we see it. We say, no, that's wrong. No, that's not right. I'm not going to live like that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to make that decision. I'm not going to go there. But over and over and over and over and over, the enemy comes back at us until he can find a place in us where we will compromise. We may not go all the way, but we'll say, well, you know, just for a second. You can't stay awake spiritually if you relax. You gotta be on guard. You gotta be on guard. What would you do, parents, if you knew somebody was trying to break in and kill your kids? Would you stay awake all night at the door of your house? Would you stay there? Would you defend it if somebody came to the door the first time and you knew what their intentions were? Would you push them back? Would you do whatever it took to defend them? Would you protect them? Would you take a defensive posture or an offensive posture? Would you answer the door the second and the third time? 
then what in the world as parents are we doing not defending our kids that live in our house against the spiritual enemies that are coming to destroy our kids? See, we need to make a decision that as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We're gonna read the word. We're gonna worship Jesus. We're gonna have some standards. I'm gonna say no to my kids. My kids might hate me until they're 20, but I'm gonna fight against the enemy. Are we fighting for our marriages? Are we fighting for our church? Are we fighting for our communities? Well, I don't want to get aggressive. Whatever you concede to, the enemy will use to dominate you. All right. Hi, I'm your new friend. I'm just (laughs) preaching on staying awake. So let me give you number two. Number two, if you want to stay awake, you got to stay in the light. Dark rooms are the easiest place to fall asleep. A dark room. I like to go in my room and we like pull the shades down and cover my head with a blanket because any light, I don't like any light. Some people can sleep like with the TV on, lights on, popcorn maker going, dog barking, kids playing with Legos. They can sleep in any type of environment. I need quiet. I want dark. The way that you stay awake (coughs) is you got to stay in the light. First John says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sin. Psalm 119 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So we got to stay in the light. What does it mean to stay in the light? Well, number one, you got to stay in relationship daily with Jesus. And number two, you got to stay in the word. When I got saved, I was 12 years old my grandparents' little church, and somebody asked me, what's your background? And I say, I'm spiritually eclectic because my grandparents uh, raised me in a Pentecostal holiness church. So we had church, Hammond B3, Oregon, my Aunt Jeanette's hair in a beehive twitching in the overhead projector screen. I mean, three-hour-long services, pastor in the baptismal tank splashing around. That's how I grew up having church. And then my mom married a man, and we moved to the other side of the state, went to United Methodist Church. So I I went from Pentecostal to liturgical wearing a long, you know, I was an accolade, uh, lighting the candles on on the stage and doing the creed and the liturgy and the whole thing. And then when I was 11 years old, the Baptist church bus came through and they offered Awana. They offered competition sports, snacks, and girls. And I'm like, I'm on that bus. So I got on the bus and I was Baptist for a couple of years. And then I went to an Assembly of God church and I, I, I did all my teen years in an Assembly of God church. I went to Bible college at a non-charismatic, cessationist, mid-acts, dispensationalist Bible college that I got kicked out of after a year and a half. And then I married my wife, and she was a Reformed Calvinist girl, and we planted a non-denominational church. So I've been around. But in the early days of, of coming to Jesus at 12 years old, the one thing that was consistent in my life was I had a voracious hunger for the word. When I was 12 years old, I went out to the local Christian bookstore as a 13-year-old kid and saved up my birthday money. And I bought, I I figured the bigger a Bible was, the better a Bible was. So I went out and I bought a black 50-pound heathen choker King James Schofield study Bible. And I spent my teen years working my way through that, reading that, consuming it. And you know, spiritually, here's what I know. Your natural appetite is if you don't eat, you get hungry. Your spiritual appetite's the exact opposite. If you don't eat, you lose your appetite. The more you eat, the hungrier you get. 
And you know, the enemy's tactic in a believer's life is to get you out of the light. Number one, keep you out of intimate daily relationship with Jesus in prayer. That's what it means to walk in the light as he is in the light. It means put my life in the center under the spotlight of who he is on a daily basis that reminds me who he is. And then number two, in his word, which is a lamp unto my feet that guides me. So many Christians, so many church, and especially in our culture, we are so busy that we don't have time for the word. And it just seems like, well, you know, what else do I got to do? It, it's really simple. We take in the word because it's the living daily bread that feeds our soul. And we need the word of God. I am shocked at how many people don't read their Bibles. I mean, when I went out to buy that Bible in the 80s, it seemed like there were three translations. You could get NIV, King James, or NASB. And you could get it in black, brown, or burgundy. And that was it, hardcover or leather. Today, you can go to a Christian bookstore and there's 57 translations. We got NIV, ESV, New King James, King James, Living Bible, Holman Standard. We got Amplified, Phillips, the Message Translation, the New Living Translation. We've got, you can get it in a lizard skin, ostrich skin. You can get it in a tin can and a wood box. You can get it in black leather. You can get it with a strap. You can get it with ribbons. You can get it on your phone. You can get it on your phone and it will actually speak to you. You can have Alexander Scorby read the Bible to you with a British accent if you want to. You can get student study Bible, men's study Bible, army study Bible. Uh, you can get businessmen's study Bible. You can get third shift slurpy repairman at 7-Eleven study Bible. You can get any kind of Bible you want, but the problem is our Bible only works when it's open and we're letting the light of God's word go through the eye of our heart and begin to calibrate our spirit back to the kingdom we originated from. If all we're doing is binging on Netflix, who's discipling us? Now, I love Netflix, but I love the word of God. I had a... <laughs> I had this guy in my church a couple years ago. I'm just going to tell on him because you guys don't know him. But he came up to me and he's like, you know, you, you always talk about reading the Bible. I can't understand the Bible. I'm like, I know who you are. You got a master's degree. He's like, I know. I just, I have a hard time when I read the Bible. And I said, but you're on our fantasy football league. And he knows everything, all the stats. He knows the height. He knows the background. He knows the passing distance. He knows the third strand of the mitochondrial DNA molecules that's going to determine the color of the retina of his third grandchild. He knows everything about the football players. But then he says, I don't know the word of God. Do you think the enemy will do anything to keep you from reading the Bible? I promise you he will. He'll get you distracted, he'll keep you busy, put you in a bad mood, make you fall asleep, get you irritable, start a fight with your wife, make your kid kick your dog, make the toaster burn your toast. He'll do whatever he can do to get you out of the word. But if you get in the word, it calibrates your heart so that you stay awake. You get up early in the morning. It's, it's walking strong in Jesus is not tough. Get up early, pray and read your Bible, and then go live it out the rest of the day. It's simple but I can't get up that early. Go to bed earlier. All right, third thing is we gotta stay fueled. Everybody say stay fueled. Stay fueled with the Holy Spirit. Listen, the, the greatest gift that our Father has given to us is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said he will lead and guide you into all truths. 
He will glorify me and take everything that is of mine and he'll give it to you. Jesus said, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I go away, then I send the promise of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the comforter. He's the leader. He's the guide, teacher. And Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter five, do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Be continually, which means over and over and over and over and over and over. Every single day, be filled with the Holy Spirit over again. Be energized by the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, Jesus said that you shall receive the Holy Spirit. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. There's no way in the world we can go out into the world as as demonic and dark as, I'm not talking about people, but I'm talking about the spiritual environment. There's no way we can go out there and walk out our destiny in God without the power and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. What does that require? We gotta stay fueled. We gotta stay fueled. One of the things that Jane and I are different on is she's not a risk taker, I'm a risk taker. She's quiet, kind of behind the scenes. I'm loud and out front. And I like, challenges and adventure. She likes consistency and routine. So that's why, you know, married couples, when you're opposite, you kind of help each other. But one of the things that she gets so mad at me about is I like to see how far I can take my car on empty. It's a challenge to me. She gets nervous once her tank gets half full. She's like, oh, I got to get some gas. I'm like, are you kidding me? You got like 200 miles left. And you know, now, nowadays your car will actually tell you how many miles you have left. And I think whoever the engineer is who designed that to tell me how many miles I got left is a liar. <laughs> and I like to prove it. So what I'll do is I like to get to zero. The fun doesn't begin till you get to zero. So I'll drive it and Jane, Jane's like, you need to stop and get gas. I'm like, it says I got five miles left. She's like, well, how long are you gonna go? I'm like, I wanna see what the real mile, so I wanna see what the real limit is. So the furthest I've gotten is 22 miles over zero. And the only reason I stopped then was because Jane like, you get gas now. I am not walking on the side of the highway because you're doing your little adventure thing. I'm like, all right, weak faith, be it to you. All right. So. I got gas, and you know, it's kind of a challenge. My son, he likes to do it too. So we're, how far did you go? And you know, whatever. So it's fun to do with your car because it doesn't have eternal ramifications. But you know, it's a terrible way to live your faith, to live half full or to, to lead on empty or to follow Jesus on empty. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit over and over and over again. In Matthew 25, Jesus told a parable. And in the parable, he equates 10 virgins who were coming out to meet the bridegroom. And they came out with their lamps, and in ancient times, the lamps were oil lamps. Five of them brought extra oil. Five of them came with not enough. They came half. And it says, and when the bridegroom was delayed, worship keyboard, you guys can come out whenever you want to. When the bridegroom was delayed to meet them in the middle of the night, when it was pitch dark, five of the virgins who were betrothed to the bridegroom said to the other five, give me some of your oil so that my lamp doesn't go out. And their answer was, no, I'm not going to give you my oil. You need to go and buy some so that you don't run out. And while they went to buy their oil, 
their reserve, that's when the bridegroom came. It's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 13. Don't fall asleep, stay awake, lest the master of the house come when you're not expecting it. You see, there's no such thing as secondhand anointing. You can't, the oil represents anointing. It represents the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. And the five virgins wanted to borrow it from somebody else. You can't borrow somebody else's relationship with God to fuel yours. It's got to be your initiative. You got to consistently come before the presence of God. You got to get into the word. You've got to make it a priority. You've got to see it and realize and remind yourself, I'm not from this world. Heaven's my home. The kingdom of God is my home. But I'm here on a mission. Listen to me, Saint. You are not here to just breathe oxygen and drink Coke products. You're here to fulfill a purpose and a destiny. If it was just about getting you saved and getting you to heaven someday, Pastor Bobby would have just held you under when he baptized you until bubbles stopped coming up and we would have celebrated another soul going on to glory. But the fact he pulled you back up out means that there's something for you to accomplish in this life. And you're either going to fulfill your destiny, you're either going to define your boundaries or somebody else is going to define your boundaries and they're going to have you fulfill their destiny. How do we do that? We got to be so aligned with Jesus. We got to be people of his word. We've got to be people that stand up in the day in which we live and in fact, I want to invite you, if you would, to stand up with me all over this room. I want to, in closing, read a stanza out of an old hymn, because I believe that one of the things that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus, is he says, stand therefore with the full armor of God on, stand therefore in the strength that is the Lord. We're called to stand, not sit down. We're called to stand. And the old hymn, second verse of that old hymn of stand up for Jesus says this, stand up, stand up for Jesus. Stand in his strength alone. The arm of flesh will fail you. You dare not trust your own. Put on the gospel armor. Each piece put on with prayer. Where duty calls or danger, be never wanting there. We're called to stand in his presence, stand as his people. When the enemy comes and says, sit down and be quiet, sit down and be like everybody else, sit down and compromise. We stand in the strength and in the might of the Lord and we stay awake. God wants us to be so alert in the hour in which we live. I wanna pray for us before Pastor Bobby comes up. If you would, would you bow your heads with me all over the room? Lord, what a privilege to speak to this congregation. Lord, what a privilege to share your word, the word that is mighty in God to the pulling down of strongholds, the word of God that is sharper than any two-edged sword. Spirit of the living God, you and you alone can awake us. You awake us to our need of a savior and you awake us on a daily basis to live in the light of the kingdom. Lord, help us to stay alert. Help us to stay awake. Help us to be people of the light in this dark present generation. Let the world look and see you in us, I pray today in Jesus' name. Amen.
Um, if you would, bow here to close your eyes one more time. One of the things Dr. Kendall talked to me about last week was never losing the heart of a soul winner. He said in your personal life and your personal relationships, never lose sight that you're called to win souls. And he said as a church, he said don't get caught up in everything else. Pay attention and win souls. And so right now I just believe there's many of us that need to stay awake and be alert, but there's some of us that can't stay awake because we're still spiritually dead. And your life is not producing spiritual fruit, no hope, no joy, no peace, no righteousness, no obedience to God because you don't have the ability because your spirit is still dead. And I believe God is speaking to some people this morning. The Holy Spirit's saying, it's time for you to come alive. Come alive to your purpose in Christ. Come alive to your new destiny and to eternity and to the kingdom of God. And the way to do that is to let go of what you're trying to do and accomplish. Die to yourself so you can be resurrected in Christ. And in Christ is everything you need. You'll be a new creation. You have a new destiny, a new purpose, a new focus. And all you have to do is say yes to Jesus to do that. Yes to Jesus, repent of your sin, repeat of your past, and follow him for the rest of the days of your life. So that's you. Every head is bowed, every eye is closed, just for a moment. That's you. So you know what I realized this morning? I'm spiritually dead. And I realize I need a spiritual rejuvenation. I need to come alive in Christ. And I just want to say yes to him this morning. If that's you, just slip your hand up right where you are real quick. Thank you. Anybody else? Take just a moment. Thank you. You can put your hands down. I'm going to pray in just a second. If you would do me a favor, because we, want this, we don't want this to be a hand raised. We want this to be a life lived. And after service, if you'd come down, we'll have some altar workers down front. They want to put a, a gift in your hand, a book that'll help you follow Jesus, but also want to follow up with you and just encourage you so we can pray for you and know who you are. So, Father, we thank you for a spirit of salvation. And we thank you that, Father, you still work on the hearts of people. And I thank you for each person that's responding to your voice this morning. I pray, Father, it's not an emotional decision. Father, it's a surrendered decision. They surrender to you, to your kingdom, to your purposes. Father, they repent of their past and allow for you to create in them a new creation, a new spirit, and a new life. And so, Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that washes us, that cleanses us of our sin, and allows us to be righteous before you. And so, Father, we thank you. We celebrate with you what you're doing in this place and in these people's lives. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. If you're an altar worker, come on down front. If you raise your hand in just a second, couple quick things. One, Prophetic Presbytery is tonight at 5.30 and 6.30 tomorrow night. I strongly encourage you as your pastor, I invite you to come. I believe it's a very special moment. You'll say, what is it? It's a night just to experience the voice of God and see people encouraged, loved on, maybe see prayers be answered. We'll have worship, we'll have prophetic ministry and some altar time as well. And also there's an adopted block meeting right after this service in the gathering room for all of you. You can hear what's going on, hearing, be a part of what God is doing. And last but not least, because I forget this every single month, you think I would learn by now. Buckets are at the back door for the Dream Center offering. The Dream Center should open September 22nd. will be our grand opening. Uh, but we're still giving out food every single week. Last year, we gave away 2 million pounds of food. And this offering, as of right now, all of that goes to food. And we figured it out. Every dollar that comes in provides 10 pounds of food to our neighbors, to our friends, uh, to the people our kids, go to sc- our kids go to school with. And so as you leave, you can drop some money in that bucket. That'll go a long way. And I hope you have a rest, a great rest of the week. 5.30 tomorrow night, or tonight, 6.30 tomorrow night. We will see you later on.